Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on cyber.it using the discount code podcast. How do you get the job you want in an efficient way? Renee Small, cybersecurity recruiter, Will Carlson, director of content ops at Cyber, John Bricky, SVP of cybersecurity at MasterCard, and Ryan Corey, CEO of Cyber, talk about one of the most controversial topics in cybersecurity, breaking into the cybersecurity industry. In this episode of the Cyber Podcast, our panelists discuss everything from assessing your skills to why it's near impossible to get hired in cybersecurity despite the millions of open jobs. As current recruiter and co-host of the Breaking Into Cybersecurity Podcast, Renee offers a hiring manager and recruiter perspective to why skills are a critical element for professionals today. Plus, John Bricky and Will Carlson weigh in on the skills gap versus talent gap debate. Are they the same thing? And are there really not enough qualified people to fill all the jobs needed? From misconceptions and the continuous search for industry unicorns, this episode uncovers the secrets to why people can't get past the interview process and what organizations need to do to keep up with the evolution of technology today. Here's a hint. It's based on aptitude and potential. You can't train someone to be more curious or passionate, but you can develop their technical and soft skills. With technology ingrained in everything we do, playing catch-up won't sustain this industry. Tune into the discussion and get a copy of data points mentioned throughout the podcast from Cyber's 2020 Skills Gap Research Report from the link in the description. Welcome, everybody, to the Cyber Podcast. Really, really excited for today's show. Um, we've got some special guests with deep industry expertise and knowledge. And so uh, we're going to go around the horn here and introduce those guests. I'll start off by saying that I'm Ryan. I am the co-founder and CEO of Cyberry and, um, and have been doing this for five and a half years now and, um, and excited to be here having this podcast with these special guests. So Renee, would you like to start us off with a brief introduction on yourself? Absolutely. Hi, and, and thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really, really excited to be here. Cyberry is one of my places. So super excited to have this conversation with you today. I am Renee Small, cybersecurity super recruiter, helping amazing cybersecurity talent get into opportunities and helping cybersecurity leaders hire great talent. I am also the author of a book called Magnetic Hiring, which is focused on cybersecurity hiring, as well as the co-host of the podcast, Breaking into Cybersecurity. Awesome. Awesome. And um, Colonel John Bricky, how about yourself? Oh, thanks, Ryan. Uh, just like Renee said, uh, very pleased to be here. Um, always happy to work with you guys. Um, John Bricky, Senior Vice President and Cybersecurity Evangelist at MasterCard. And in that role, I uh, also have the responsibility for education, training, and awareness. Fantastic. Thanks, John. And uh, Will, I know who you are, but why don't you tell the rest of the world who you are? Yeah, thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks for having me on today. Really appreciate the opportunity to to represent uh, both, uh, you know, my 15 years in industry and IT and cybersecurity, uh, helping secure workloads at uh, industries of all sizes, particularly in uh, financial services uh, sectors. Um, have been uh, involved here at Cyberry for a number of years in a number of different ways, all across the stack. Uh, coming in as a you know a, a learner early on, coming into a mentor role, into an instructor role, and now here finally. Uh, realizing the dream and getting to come on full time as the director of content operations here for Cyber. Yep, 
that is you. That's the guy that I know for sure. <laughs> thanks, Will. And, uh, and thanks again, everybody for being here. So we're obviously here today to talk about the big research report that, uh, that, that Cyber is releasing. Um, or when this podcast airs, it'll probably be released. The Cybersecurity Skills Gap Research Report, which was a report based on roughly uh, about a thousand different survey respondents from the cyber community. Cyber community is largely um, IT and cybersecurity pros. And so um, and it's about 70% IT and cybersecurity professionals that already work in this space. And Cyber has, as you know, roughly around 3 million um, uh, registered users. So we have good reach and we got some really cool data on this. And so, um, again, the topic is the cybersecurity skills gap. I want to start the conversation off, guys, by um, by kind of posing the question of, you know, in your own words, in your own terms, what does cybersecurity, what does the cybersecurity skills gap actually mean to you? Um, so, Renee, I'll start with you if that's okay. Sure. The cybersecurity skills gap to me means truly a skills gap and not a talent gap. And I think that those two words seem to be interchanged. And from what I've seen and from the people who come on our podcast and the, the numerous cybersecurity folks and folks who want to break into the industry, the question is really about the, the actual skills. I believe the talent is there. I believe it's not a talent gap, truly a skills gap. Getting people to bridge that, which I know Siberia is doing, um, getting people to continue, be continuous learners, to get the, the specific skills that are needed that leaders are looking for. So that's what it is in my words, like the, the real true skills that people, that leaders are looking for when they're looking to hire talent. We're going to have a fun conversation today, Renee, because you, you brought up some very provocative, and I don't disagree with any of it, but provocative stuff. Um, I think it's super neat that you brought that point up so early on. So we're going to jump back into that because I'm going to pull that thread for sure. Uh, but John, I'll turn it over to you. Cybersecurity skills gap from your perspective. Yeah. Um, what does it look like? How does it manifest itself? That kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's, uh, it should be expected because this is a pretty new field. Um, and that's, you can just tell that by you know, talking to people who are in the field and find out that very few of them, if it, hardly any of them, came into this field knowing everything they needed for the job. It's not stagnant at all. It's constantly changing. Um, it also means we're not going to find unicorns. You know, so you can say, oh, I really want this. Um, and you can have a whole list of all the qualifications they need, all the knowledge. You're not going to find that. So we have to hire based on aptitude. Uh, or potential that we see in folks. And I think looking for people who are lifelong learners is is a requirement. You have to find people who uh, don't think they know everything and they're willing to learn, as uh, they used to say in the movie Stripes. Um, you've got to find folks who have the motivation and are willing to, to continue learning. Really interesting point on that one too, John. Um, we're going to jump back into that as well because that whole topic of finding unicorns um, versus developing people is um, is is a hot topic right now, um, and I'm sure I can see Renee over there kind of smiling and nodding her head. So I think she, <laughs> she, 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 she probably every day you probably deal with that every day. It's ridiculous. Right? But, I mean, I got to change my view so I can. Oh, sorry, I got to change my view so I can see you nodding your head. <laughs> I only, now I can see everybody. Yes. Yeah. Let's hear it, Renee. Go ahead. Let's just jump into that. That's great. Yeah. You know, it's crazy because. I see it all the time. I'm a recruiter. You know, I have a cybersecurity recruitment company. We get, we see recs out there. We see job postings. We see laundry lists of requirements. 
um, some of them, one, one of the funniest things that I saw recently is, and I think it was a play on this on LinkedIn, someone had posted a job, a quote, a fake job description, but they said they were looking for, you know, AWS skills from 30, 30 years of AWS, you know, two or three PhDs, you know, um, DevSecOps from, you know, 25 years, just things that we know are not, it's unrealistic because it wasn't around. Where was Amazon 25, 30 years ago? There was no AWS, you know, like all of these various things. And one of the commenters, and it really made me laugh out loud, one of the commenters said, do lifetimes map, do lifetimes count? Like if you have two or three or four lifetimes with the two or three or four PhDs that you're looking for and the unicorns and, you know, trolls and what have you, it's kind of ridiculous. And I get it from what I've, you know, by doing, we've done over a hundred podcasts right now and spoken to so many leaders. And then my, the people, my clients, the leaders that I speak to, they've talked about having this really tight budget and wanting to kind of squeeze everything into one, you know, or squeeze so many skill sets into one role. But what ends up happening is it turns candidates off because they're either looking at it like, hey, this person wants four people in one, or, you know, what 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 do they really have going on in this environment that they're asking for all these different things, or the leader doesn't know what they want. You know, it comes off the, I don't think that leaders fully understand what it looks like to the candidate it looks really, really poor and it makes candidates question what exactly is going on out there. So, you know, I see it every day and have these conversations with leaders all the time around what are your top three skills that you're looking for? What can you train for? I'm a huge proponent for training for the skills, you know, kind of to the points that John made earlier, the continuous learning. You can't, these, these new tools and technologies come up so often. You need to have people who know how to learn. It's really interesting to hear you say that, Renee. I know when I think about the the skills gap as a term that runs around, you know, there's some things that come to mind for me as polarizing and disappointing. Um, I know from being in social media and, you know, somebody will mention the skills gap component and boy, it, it swings wide in opinion, right? Whether, oh, it doesn't even exist. It's all a joke. It's all, an, I think that's particularly disappointing to me because I, it speaks to a a bit of a lack of understanding, to your point, Renee, on that this is really a skills gap scenario. And then the employer side of that is it's exacerbated by employers, sometimes in HR departments that really are looking for that unicorn candidate that just does not exist. So it's it's just really frustrating on both sides, right? So this business has workloads that they need to secure our data. Our data, all of us on the call have businesses with our data that they need to secure. And those businesses, the reality is they're struggling to find people to sit in the seats, to do the work of securing that data. Yet there are candidates that are so frustrated that they cannot seem to find a way to get into those seats. So it it waters down the discussion, I think, of the skills gap concept. And it makes it harder to advance uh, filling that gap because we have very disparate views of of what this skill gap really is and what it means. And we can't seem to coalesce around the simple idea that businesses have workloads that they need to secure and they can't seem to find people with the skills to secure them. Absolutely. 100%. There's... I hear it all the time, especially from the candidate side. I mean, we started the Breaking Into Cybersecurity podcast because 
Chris Folon and I had received so many requests for mentorship, for trying to break into the industry, for people who had masters in cybersecurity. And quite frankly, I didn't even fully understand a few years ago when we started this, you know, my business is very, we're focused on the, usually folks call us when they're looking for somebody that's really seasoned, you know, they have 10 years of experience or what have you, and, you know, pretty seasoned folks. And so when all of these entry level or career changers started showing up in my LinkedIn inbox saying, can you please help me? And I was, I said to myself, what's the issue? There's this big talent gap slash skills gap. At the time it was called, you know, I was learning, hearing more about the talent gap. And you have this degree from a relatively reputable university. Why aren't you getting at I was confused. And then connecting with Chris and Chris was getting the same exact info, my podcast co-host. And we said, we want to create something where people can share what they've been doing and how they've been breaking in. And cyber areas, I mean, I keep saying this over and over again, but <laughs> we would talk about you guys, you're, you, you know, we talk about cyber area like almost at one point every single time because people kept talking about the training and how they would be breaking into the industry and how difficult it was and what have you, which was mind boggling to me. So we're seeing these numbers, these 3 million open positions and all this stuff. And then I got this frustrating group of people, mostly young people saying, I went, I spent this money on this master's and I can't get a job. What's going on with the entry-level roles? And it's, it's, it, <laughs> it makes my, my skin crawl. Like I think it's the most ridiculous thing out there. So. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I want to have John expand on that then Renee, cause good, good, good points in there. I'm really curious, John, as to this whole finding unicorns concept that you kind of threw out there, how does that tend to manifest itself? And then what is that in in MasterCard in particular? And then what does that do? What are the downstream effects of that across the org? Yeah. So, so we're, we're pretty fortunate because um, our main tech hub is in the St. Louis area and MasterCard is one of the larger brands in the area. So we can oftentimes poach from other companies um, and find somebody like, for example, as we get into more clouds, like, Hey, there are people in the area who've been doing cloud for other companies. You know, we're able to do that for the most part. But, uh, I personally experienced this when I hired, uh, some security researchers in the past. Um, I was asking for, you know, hands-on keyboard. I wanted someone who worked in, uh, in government operating against, uh, foreign governments. And I, you know, I, I just had these ideas. They need all these things in my, some of the members of my team gave me a list of all these skills and I I struggled with it. I was reaching out to friends, friends of friends, friends and family saying, hey, do you know anybody? And um, and in the DC area specifically, I, you know, the answer was, well, yeah, but you got to pay them a lot more. I was like, well, that's not, that's not in my budget to pay them this. Um, and, uh, and, the, and the challenge I saw at the time was that uh, a lot of the talent, for example, that exists in government they, there are some unicorns, um, but they're in that bubble of, of defense. And that's fine with me because I came from that world. I want them doing what they do. But at the same time, they don't know what's out in industry. They don't know of the, of the opportunities out there. So, um, so it, it, it's like we, we want unicorns. There may be some close to that, but they're not really interested in, they want to hold on to that clearance. They want to stay in that defense world. Um, and then one, one thing related to that I was going to say is we almost create some of the problem ourselves too, 
because we have this uh, you know tool sprawl. So we've got we've got tools that we use to to defend our enterprises, and we keep adding, 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 and and we start off say you're going to buy a new firewall or a new uh, deception capability, and you're like, oh, I'll just I'll just uh, use you know existing people to do this, and then you realize that wow, shoot, I need someone with knowledge in this, and like maybe I need someone full time to do this, and you got to go find someone who's got you know you want someone with three years experience in this, and uh, it's sometimes these capabilities are really new and it's just it's it's really hard to get people who have the right experience so you have to compromise you have to say okay i'm willing to do this and part of that compromise is okay what do they absolutely need and what can we develop them in how can we bring and i'm i'm doing this right now with another position where i'm like okay i really want this but they got to have some of this so they're going to have to use cyber for example to get up to speed in these other areas that i need them to you know to to catch up on John, do you think, I wonder the the velocity of change with tooling and industry, shouldn't, shouldn't that be driving employers to be looking for candidates with skills over tool experience? It should, you're right. But um, I think, and I can't speak from a lot of experience on this from my current position, but I think the people who need, they get fixated on, I really need someone to make that thing hum. Like if it's a new orchestration tool, like I don't have time for to train somebody, and I don't have anyone to train this person. Like if you're just now implementing an orchestration tool, you kind of want someone to step in on day one, and you know be well oiled and, and and running. You don't you don't want them to come in on day one and then crawl, walk, run. Yeah, John. Inside, to that point, in some um, earlier research that we performed or that we did, uh, we found that uh, most managers believe that it takes about six months. Um, six to 12 months to get somebody operationally efficient in their work role in this field, in cybersecurity space. Um, but then the average turnaround time of a cybersecurity professional is 18 months because they're so highly sought after. It's like terribly inefficient, which which I think is neat for the cyber product to to, uh, to be an onboarding tool for um, for organizations. But I do want to, I do want to, and I know we've, we've kind of ignored some of the stats from the report, so I promise we'll get there. But this other neat topic here of talent versus skills gap, right? So we've we've heard the the anywhere from two to four million unfilled jobs in cybersecurity. We've heard those statistics for years now. We've been talking about it for years and years. Um, that's one thing. Skills gap is a very uh, you know very different thing on its own. Skills gap being more of an existing team and where do the holes lie? Um, is that kind of how you define it, Renee? Um, in terms of that whole talent versus skills. Um, and you also said that you don't necessarily believe that we have a talent gap. I'd love to get your opinions on that. Yeah, for sure. And I do, you know, skills are very specific. So it's what a leader needs, what the team needs, you know. So yes, there will be skills gaps in pretty much any team across any industry. And that's another thing that I could go down a rabbit hole on with cybersecurity people thinking that they are God's gift to, you know, humanity. And I love us all. I love you all. Uh, But just like we can train all other types of people, we can train people into the right cybersecurity professionals. Um, So from a talent perspective, yeah, you have people who are bringing um, their talents. They are... And I could give a number of examples of people who I've been actually talking to, who leaders that I've spoken with that have had people and they've transitioned them into new roles. And that's one of the things that we're focusing on right now. But when it comes to talent, 
You know, one of the, um, I spoke with a, a CISO probably about a year ago and I met multiple of them and asked them questions around who, tell me about people who you've transitioned into security. So talk to me about folks that you put through some kind of training program. And then on the other side, they came out as security professionals. And what types of people were they? Did they have degrees? Did they have, you know, like their educational backgrounds and things like that? One of the, the, the probably the two most common that I've heard of were help desk professionals who t- typically do not have college backgrounds and college degrees and admin of, administrative assistants, executive assistants, secretaries, folks that fall into that administrative space that have been trained into becoming cybersecurity analysts. And this is obviously at the, you know, the more entry level. Um, And it all goes back to these are talented people. They were doing great jobs at what they did. They were very attentive. They had attention to detail. They knew how to respond quickly. They were calm at their roles. They understood how to make their, their leaders look great. All of these different things that people already have and they brought to the table. And a leader saw that in these people and said, hey, you might be a great analyst or the, the person, you know, reached out to the leader. And lo and behold, they can be trained for the skills that were needed and then transition into these other roles. So I definitely see a difference when it comes to talent versus skills. Skills is very specific. It's like, what do you need? What can I train you on? And leaders say this to me all the time, and John probably is going to chime in and say something as well. They're like, we want passion. We want, you know, you can't train for that. You can't train a person to be passionate. You can't train a person to have like this instinctive curiosity. They want to dig in and find out what's going on. Those types of things, those are talents that people bring to the table. The skills, you know, learning AWS or learning whatever new hot thing comes out, that can be taught. So those are the two, you know, the, the, where, where I see where people say talent, because again, so many people are out there, they've gotten degrees, they do all these different things. And quite frankly, the co- constant reskilling or upskilling and, and taking training and which we saw in your report, there's so many people who have just gone and they do it on their own because they want to stay ahead of the curve. They want to be um, relevant, stay relevant, stay ahead when it comes to security. So that's my take on skills versus talent. John, any thoughts there or anything on how it applies in your organization? Well, I have one more kind of area or, or job specialty to add to that. So MasterCard, we used to have separate, um, physical security and cybersecurity organizations and workforce. And uh, a few years ago, when my CISO, uh, Ron Green, took over, he came from a physical and cyber background with the Army, Secret Service, and, and financial sector. So he combined those. And we had several people, and we still to this day have this happen, where we have people come over from the physical security side into cybersecurity. And of course, there's a, there's, there's a technical hurdle there but they already have, you know, some of the competencies. They're all, they already have some of the qualities of like being aware of things and being suspicious and some of the things that are already going to set them up to be successful in cybersecurity, um, investigative cap- skills, for example. So that's just one area where I, I'd say um, people haven't thought about that. Uh, or if there are people listening who are in the physical security field today, um, you've already got a leg up towards the cybersecurity world as well. One hundred percent. I want to add that to John's point. That's exactly what I've seen too. Physical security. I talked to someone who was a private investigator in the past. 
easily transferable because you're already thinking about, you know, what are the bad guys looking for? How do they get into a building? How do you do these? All of those types of that, that, that background already is so transferable to cyber. Yeah, dealing with evidence, questioning, you know, all those. There's insider threat, insider threat in forensics, investigations. There's a huge, in even audit compliance, there's a lot of skills that are directly transferable. I mean, I can talk about... Sorry, Renee, go ahead. Yeah, the, the insider threat piece, that's one of my favorite areas because I was actually brought into security from HR. And as soon as I got to talk to, I was in the threat vulnerability management space. And as soon as I got there, my CISO at the time, you know, had me doing these threat briefs. And every time I did research and presented it back, it was about these insider threats. And I would go back to him and say, why aren't you all connecting with HR? Why aren't you doing investigations? You know, what's going on with HR, HR, HR? And no one else there even remotely thought about it. But I was thinking, I know the disgruntled employees. I know where some of the bones are buried, you know, like (laughs) what's going on here, you know? And it's so, it brought that different um, diversity of thought, which we talk about again a lot on our podcast, but diversity of thought where you're bringing in people to your point with the physical security people already having their hat on that, that physical security hat on the HR person coming in thinking, oh, these investigations or this, or, you know, we see stuff that may not, you know, might not trigger a thought from another engineer or something like that. So it just goes to show there's so much talent there. There's a lot of talent. It's interesting to me when to, to talk about the difference between the talent and the skills gap and that so many folks that I talk with as a mentor in industry, they, they think that they, it's the same thing. They think that I went to a university, I got my master's degree, I'm talented, I'm capable, why can't I get hired? And I think some of the connective tissue is oftentimes missing and that they don't realize that just because I've done those things doesn't necessarily mean that I offer an employer any skills whatsoever. And notwithstanding the finding a unicorn, but just having somebody that you know John can bring in on day one that can actually sit down to a keyboard and not know a lot about a lot of things, but operationally do something for the organization that they're joining today, that to me is a skill. And that's, I get it. There's a lot of frustration because there's a lot of ways that we think in this space that we can learn and earn those skills. Um, you know, I, again, I have this master's degree. I'm ready to go, right? Well, maybe. No. Maybe not. What what have you done? What can you do for an employer today? And to me, those are skills. And that's really where the gap is at. We have a lot of people that know a lot of things, but the skill is where the rubber meets the road and where you apply that knowledge that you have in your head to actually operationally accomplishing something uh, in your workplace. I agree 100%. Good, uh... Yeah, good discussion there for sure, guys. It's um, it's something that we think a lot about here on the Cyberry team. Um, um, but I want to throw in here, you know, this skills gap that exists in organizations. It manifested itself on, um, from the research that we did, where sixty-five percent of IT and security managers agree or strongly agree that these skills gaps have a negative impact on their team's effectiveness. Sixty-five percent seems like a pretty big number. Um, John, does that shock you at all? Or is it something that you've seen? Um, thoughts? Um, from my personal experience, um, it doesn't shock me. Um, but 
I mean, just to give you examples, I mean, sometimes like we're looking for someone for a certain role and we may be creating, like when I created our security research team, I, I created that role from scratch. And you can't go to the NICE workforce framework and find a security researcher there. I tried. There's security, there's a research develop, developer, which is somewhat related, but uh, you know, a lot of people say a security researcher is a unicorn. So I knew going in there that uh, there would be some gaps. But um, another area that you oftentimes find gaps is like um, internal like cybersecurity training. You know, you may be looking for a teacher or someone who's been in education or training in the back in the past. But what are the chances they actually actually know the technology? What are the chances they know about phishing campaigns and how do you put together effective training for you know cybersecurity experts? So uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. I, I think that um, um, there's just there's so much breadth and depth to this field that you know managers should expect there to be um, skills gaps. Yeah, when I think of skills gap, I, I go. You mentioned it uh, there, John. I, I go to the NIST Nice Framework in my because the NIST the Nice Framework has done a pretty good job, a, re- a really good job of identifying like the different roles across a technical organization and then what should those people in those different roles have from a cybersecurity skill set standpoint. And I think that um, you know the Cyberary's uh, business product uh, is one that's designed around that um, because we want to make it easy for people to, to be able to assess the skills that they have on the team and then sort of help to fill those uh, where, you know, where the voids are. It, and but, I yeah, want to. You, you're involved in the Nice Framework too, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I should say I didn't mean to disparage the framework at all. I'm I'm the industry chair for the Nice uh, Working Group, uh, the Nice Workforce Framework, and 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 those number of roles, work roles have been expanding. There are 52 work roles there. Um, where we're changing the futures, we're focusing more on competencies. We're also making it easier to use. There are tools out there from uh, DHS, and there's a Cyber Austria website as well that helps you just plug in uh, a work role and it takes the nice workforce framework and gives you like two pages to really spell out what are the knowledge, skills, abilities, and tasks that I need for this role. And obviously, 52 work roles, you can't cover every possible work role. Um, You know, there's all kinds of statistics out there saying that uh, our, our youth today will be working in jobs that don't even exist today. So one day in the future, there'll be We'll, we'll be adding new work roles, and that's a constantly uh, changing document. But it, it is a great uh, common lexicon, and you uh, you and I've been talking about this for probably more than three years now. I I was before I was even working with Nice. I said we we've got to come around a common framework so that we can talk the same language. And I think the Nice Workforce Framework is that common lexicon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Renee. Do you use? Do you think about the the nice framework at all when you're assessing a candidate? And then also, second part to that is how much is assessment? How much does assessment play a role in the job that you do? So I do look at it, and I encourage a lot of leaders to look at it because what I've learned is that they don't. <laughs> they don't. They're not looking at the nice framework as much as you know it would be nice to do so, um, or for them to do so. And what was the other part of your question? I'm sorry. Do you, you um, do you use assessment at all oh. in, in your process? Yes. And so, how much of a challenge is it or yeah, that kind of thing? Yeah, for sure. So it depend it really depends on the organization that I partner with. Um, 
I have seen assessments um, go one way or the other. So sometimes they're ruling folks out, especially some of the psychological ones um, of roles that I don't know if they should be used as so much of a, I, I love assessments. I think they should be a part, a component, but um, some sometimes some leaders who may not be as well-versed will use them to rule people out, which is, um, you know, not really a fan of. But when it comes to technical assessments, yes, utilizing those um, in some roles is definitely something that's used. And I think it would be nice to to use more of them and more organizations to be able to use more of them just to see where people kind of fall on the spectrum. And again, when the person doesn't come with, you know, the known... um, you know, what Will talked about earlier when he said a, a leader having someone that, that needs to, to do the thing. That's what I think about when it comes to assessments. Being able to, and I tell, I tell the people that too, who, who tend to be frustrated and say they have a degree and what have you. Every leader I've ever spoken to experienced Trump's degree every day of the week because they want someone that could come and hit the ground running and do the thing that they need done, not necessarily know about it, theorize about it or whatever. It's like, we need, we need fingers to the keyboard to be able to do it. And I think assessment, using more assessments would be able to assess more people for that. I think it's interesting to hear you say that, Renee, and that, you know, assessments to exclude people because where my, my head tends to go when I think of assessments in regards to skill gap is, I have this team, but I don't know necessarily how operational readily how operationally ready we are to do all the things before us. So, in a in a team growth uh, perspective of there's, it's totally possible to have a skill gap on my existing seated team. I may be completely staffed out and still have a skill gap that puts my organization at risk that I might not have visibility to. So, being able to assess those things as a manager, I mean. John, I'm sure, how much time do you have to really sit down and think of, well, you know, I wonder what my strong suits of the team are and where I need to shore up. And that's a really interesting, when we talk about skill gap, we tend to talk so much about uh, all these vacant seats, but there's a skill gap most likely within organizations that are seated that put all of our PII at risk every day. Oh, totally, totally agree with that, and I've I've got firsthand experience with that as well, and um, and it it covers all sorts of areas. So it's not just uh, some of the technical skills, but some of the softer skills, um, like business writing and communication presentations, those sorts of things. Um, and I think it's probably more common in cybersecurity to find a lack of some of the soft skills. Um, but um, but yeah, definitely, you could have all all of your positions filled. And still realize that they're you're missing something. And I think we don't use assessments enough. I would like to use them more for, um, uh, as Renee said, kind of assessing people uh, as they apply for certain positions. But also understanding that not everyone tests well. I'm a good example of that. I won't mention my SAT scores. But um, also, when, once you're in the position, Will, as you're talking about getting assessed, and we do it in all sorts of areas. We we assess risk all the time. We assess a lot of other competencies across the enterprise, um, I, I, don't, I, I don't see why we shouldn't assess risk. Now, I will tell you what the HR response, at least what I've heard in the past from some, some HR folks, is that um, they're they, they concerned about how the assessments are used for bonuses, for compensation, and other things. So that is uh, an area of concern for some HR folks. I would love to find a way around that to 
to figure out a way to make it work for us because I think it's important for developing our staff. Yeah, no doubt. And um, I think that, you know, the, the future, the past has kind of been like certifications, get this certification and boom, you're ready for this job and, and that kind of thing. And that's always been to me just so inadequate, just completely inadequate. And the opportunity to assess one's skills and then to provide them with a pathway that shows them what their next level self can be um, is, is, you know, the, the cyber is working every day to make that a reality. And, and the product kind of does that. Obviously, we'll be better at it in the future. But um, but that's that's the real way to kind of get people where they need to go is just to show them a path and show them, show you where you're the holes that may may need to be filled for you to get there. Um, like we to, also know that. Go ahead, go ahead, Renee. Yeah. No, I like to add that I think that um, specifically assessing people internally because from my perspective or the ones that I get mostly is on the the hiring side, not on the internal side. And uh, John made a good point about internally and me. I used to work internal in HR. So I totally get what he means um, with the HR potential pushback. Um, but it, it could be so useful. Like looking, taking an assessment, and I've done a ton of assessments because in HR, we tend to do assessments with each, on each other a lot. Um, and just like, you know, things like Myers-Briggs and the, the, like the soft skill ones and what have you. And it really tends to give you a glimpse of where you are best suited. And so, you know, if you're trying to be, for example, a generalist, but your skills or what's assessed really shows you as an individual, like I should probably more be a specialist. Like I have this knack for this one thing. I think it's important for employees themselves, not only for the leadership and, you know, the skills and things like that, but to for self-reflection. So you can see like, okay, instead of going this path of being a pen tester, for example, oh, I might be better off being a researcher. Like I might be, you know, that may be the better fit for me. So using assessments just as a whole, especially internally and, and relatively frequently would be a great thing to do. Now, Ryan, you mentioned giving people a path and, and I think one of the words you used to describe it was efficiency. And I know for me, having been a mentor on the platform for so long, that's really something that uh, people in the market wanting to break in or even in, in the industry are looking for is that how do I go about accomplishing my goal, whatever it may be, the next position, the next promotion, breaking into the industry, but how do I do that as efficiently as possible? So how do I get efficiently to the point that I'm yielding the results that I want and I have the skills that I need to go forward? And I just think that efficiency is such a big component of this that not only is good for people breaking into the industry, but it's also good for industry as well. So everything that we can do to shore up people's efficiency to go from where they're at today to filling a seat operationally and doing a skill for an organization is, I mean, those things are huge. And there's a number of ways to do that. We talked about today, right? I mean, assessments is one of those that makes me more efficient. Where do I need to spend my time and efforts? Give me a path. Help me see where I need to go. Give me an industry awareness and help me efficiently get from where I am to where I want to go. So I think paths are so important and efficiency is a huge component of this as we look to address the skills gap is we can't wait for this to take 10 years to begin chipping away at it. I mean, the pace of change is just so fast. When we look back and think, how old is the internet? Um, Yet how many people in the workforce today have ever had a job where there was not a computer on their desk? I think 
When we look at our own lives, technology is so ingrained in everything that we do. It's in our cars, it's in our homes, it's in our pockets. Yet we're playing catch up because the the pace of development and velocity and feature set was the important metric for so long. Now as organizations, right, MasterCard's trying to facilitate all these transactions worldwide, yet we're doing it over infrastructure that was not ever really designed to be doing it, and we're having to find ways to secure it. So it's no mystery that we're playing catch-up, but I think we've got to find ways to play catch-up as efficiently as possible, uh, or it's just going to take way too long. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the, I'm going to uh, do a, get a final statement on the table here, and keep in mind that I can't answer this because I'm completely training biased, uh, given where I, where I work and what I do, and Will's probably the same way. But, um, but our research found that 20, in this post-COVID world, 22% of organizations are cutting their training budgets. 16% of these of organizations have no training budget at all. Is that irresponsible? Absolutely. Right, 100%. <laughs> I mean, in this environment right now, when there's an uptick in job postings, there's an uptick in people needing cybersecurity talent, there's an uptick in hacking, there's so many things going on with Zoom bombing and schools and so many people who have not been traditionally remote and working from home and having computers and laptops and their children getting on their work laptops and so many different things happening. It is irresponsible to not be training your staff, to be training your cybersecurity staff, your non-cybersecurity staff. It is ridiculous. And to, to be frank, like you're just opening yourself up for more potential um, vulnerabilities by not having all of these humans that are sitting at home with laptops and little children and non you know, people who don't have little children, just overall, it is. It's irresponsible. Yeah, Renee, I'll send you an endorsement check later. Okay, <laughs> I, I, I agree. Ahead. Yeah, I was just, just going to say, um, I, I hear on so many different meetings these days, not necessarily within my company, but across companies. Uh, I was in one yesterday with about 40 CISOs and, and people who work for CISOs uh, talking about asking, what hobby have you taken up during the coronavirus? Um, I don't have time to think of a hobby. However, a lot of people apparently do. And um, I think it'd be irresponsible to not take advantage of this opportunity to upskill and to, you know, jump onto cyber or, 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 or use other resources to get up to speed. Um, so I, I think that um, this is, you know, with all the downside to what's been going on, I think a lot of people have had more time to think about, well, what will I do with this, this time? Now, we... Uh, during normal times in the office, like to give people time during the week for training. They can train on whatever they want. We want it to be, you know, of course, related to their jobs, but they can look at new areas of cybersecurity. And it, it can be tough when you're in an office environment and people are constantly stopping by your desk and you just can't free yourself. But maybe now people have more opportunities to block off time. I guess they can just not answer their their calls for a couple of hours and go do those kinds of things. So uh, for companies to not uh, maintain investments or, or to even to not increase investments, I think is irresponsible. And we, we owe it to our employees, but to our organizations, we, I mean, the, the adversaries aren't cutting back. So we gotta, we gotta keep up. Yeah. Yeah. And John, that doesn't surprise me that you guys do that. I, I didn't know that about MasterCard, but it doesn't surprise me because I know that you guys are uh, pioneers and out in front of the cybersecurity uh, landscape. So that, that's good on you guys. 
it does go against the trend. So you're aware. Um, 48% of respondents in our survey said that um, that they have to get their training on their own personal time. Um, so so that's uh, that's the thing. And only um, I believe it was 25% of um, of the respondents. Um, yeah, only 25% of respondents get training on the job. So against the trend there, that's really cool. It's it's unfortunate because what I hear from candidates all the time, and it aligns directly to the survey, is that what makes them want to stay at a company and or leave a company, one of the, and I believe it's number one, is training, staying up to date. It typically isn't salary. It typically is, it has something to do with gaining new skills, gaining more training, um, the company being supportive, sending them to conferences, all of that. That's like such a huge component with employees as a whole wanting to either move to a new company where they're getting more of a training budget or stay at their current company. So it would behoove leaders, leadership, the companies, whoever overall to um, encourage more of it, give people time the way John is doing with his team. Um, it's and, just, it, it, it works for retention purposes. Yeah. I mean. I'd, I'd take that even further. So right now, so I know this is not possible with a lot of companies. There's still a lot of uncertainty uh, when it comes to balance sheets. But, um, you know, a lot of companies have, have eliminated or significantly reduced travel budgets um, to cover other areas or just to come back in general. But I've encouraged my team to to do virtual conferences. So if, if there's a, a conference fee, okay, great. We're going to spend still a tenth of what we would normally spend. Um, I just had four of us just had attended a big conference this week. And I was really glad for them to have that opportunity because I know I've, I've, I've heard the gripes. I've heard people talk about how they don't get development at their company. They don't get opportunities to train. They don't get to go to conferences. They don't get to, you know, uh, engage in training. So, um, I personally try to make that available and we we try to find opportunities across the enterprise as well. And I think it's more so in the security space. So I've recruited for technology for almost 20 years in all different capacities. In security, more so than people who are in, you know, project managers and developers and all this other stuff. In security, more so than ever, going to those um, virtual conferences and, you know, pre-COVID non-virtual conferences, being a part of the community being a part of the group who knows what's upcoming. You know, it's always like, what's next? What's next? They always, the security professionals, everyone that I've spoken to, it's always about forward looking. So having that training and having that consistent, um, you know, what you all have done, John, having that consistent um, uh, training budget and being able to look at, like you said, your budget and say, okay, well, you, you you know, we'll take the, the potential funds that we would have sent to people and now we can send 10 people because it's now virtual. Things like that are, are just so very important. No, the, the cybersecurity professionals that I talk to are by and large exceptionally mission-minded people that have a, a high sense of altruism and just wanting to accomplish the goal. So being able to pour back into them keeps them committed to the goal. And let's be frank, I mean, everybody on the call, this is not, Cybersecurity is not easy work. This is not something that you stick with if you pick it up tomorrow out of the blue and go, you know what, I think I want to do cybersecurity. I mean, there's there the people that that really go far and do so well in this area are bought in. They are pouring themselves into this. So for them to have 
an organization that pours back into them and gives them the training that they're looking for and the community that they're looking for to improve themselves, I think that's a big part of the reason that's so appealing to a cybersecurity professional is because of their mission-minded approach to so many things at a, at a task that that's, seems almost Herculean and so difficult to accomplish day-to-day. Yeah, yeah. Well said, Will. Um, and, and all the great points here. This has been fantastic content today, guys. So um, I appreciate you doing this. Renee, where can um, interested parties get in touch with you? The easiest place where I'm at probably more often than not is LinkedIn. So you can reach out to me Renee, on LinkedIn. Renee Brown Small is my LinkedIn um, LinkedIn address. And we're on there doing live streams and, and helping cybersecurity people connect. So, And then the name of the podcast again was? It's called Breaking Into Cybersecurity. And you can find that anywhere you can find it. You can your find podcast, it on right? iTunes, YouTube, LinkedIn Live. We do a LinkedIn Live and then we stream to YouTube and we stream to, um, and then we download it on iTunes. It's anywhere you can find podcasts. Perfect. Perfect. And John, where can people find yeah. out more or great candidates apply? Yeah, fantastic. I was going to say, we're always looking for talent, even if you don't have all the skills. Um, and we, of course, have. Uh, Cyber as a partner, so we have a plan to help uh, bring people up to the skill level. Um, so I would go to mastercard.com/careers uh, to find our available positions. Uh, we've been hiring throughout the pandemic, and uh, we're looking forward to recovery and to hiring more in the future. People can always look for me, uh, John Bricky, PhD, on LinkedIn. Awesome, awesome, very cool. All right, well. Um, Renee Small, thank you very much for your time. Colonel John Bricky, appreciate your time as well. And, and then Will Carlson, you as well. Um, so this has been really awesome, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Cybrary out. Hey, this is Thor. Thanks for listening to the Cybrary podcast and make sure to check back next Wednesday for our newest episode.